Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. Do you guys remember when I told you about all of the substation attacks? Well, two Puyallup men were arrested Saturday in connection to attacks on four Pierce County Power substations over the Christmas holiday in Washington. Matthew Greenwood and Jeremy Crahan appeared in court on Tuesday on charges of conspiracy to damage energy facilities. Greenwood also faces charges of possession of an unregistered firearm if convicted, and the two men could face up to 20 to 30 years in prison. Prosecutors are asking they remain at the Federal Detention Center at SeaTac pending future hearings. The attacks cut power to thousands, caused at least $3 million in damage, and will take 36 months to repair. According to court documents, the men broke into the four substations and manipulated the high side brakes, causing the outages, but did not steal or cut any wire. They reportedly told law enforcement that they cut the power so they could rob a nearby business. According to the U.S. Department of Justice, the men were identified through cell phone location data and law enforcement officials arrested them a few days after the attack. Video at one of the substations also captured images of one of the men and a pickup truck. When asked about other power station attacks around the country and in the Pacific Northwest last year, Brown said it's a, quote, national initiative to make sure that these targets are protected. We're still trying to get into the facts, obviously. We're paying attention to what happened in North Carolina. There have been prior attacks here in the Northwest as well. And not just most recently, this is a national problem, but we're still investigating this case and a lot to be determined about the facts. The FBI served a search warrant over the weekend and found clothing matching the clothing seen on the surveillance video in the men's homes. Agents also seized two unregistered short-barreled firearms, one with a makeshift silencer, from Greenwood's residence. Y'all, if you get the opportunity, actually click on this article link um, because the picture of the firearms, it's just something that you have to actually see yourself, uh, the makeshift silencer particularly. According to court documents, one of the defendants said the motive was to shut power to a local business to steal cash. Tacoma Public Utilities also released a statement Tuesday in writing. We take the safety and security of our substations and all critical infrastructure we operate seriously. We committed significant resources to both cyber and physical security over the past several years to increase protection of our assets. Two substations in Graham and Elk Plains are operated by Tacoma Power and the substations in Kapowson and Hemlock are operated by Puget Sound Energy. The substations are spread out over dozens of miles. The attacks occurred early in the morning and in the evening, and the first and fourth attacks were separated by over 12 hours. 
This makes it at least unlikely that an individual would simply happen to be at all four locations around the times that they were each vandalized. Conspiracy to attack energy facilities is punishable by up to 20 years in prison and possession of an unregistered firearm is punishable by up to 10 years in prison, according to the DOJ. Assistant U.S. Attorney Stephen Hobbs told the judge in U.S. District Court in Tacoma this afternoon that both defendants should remain in federal detention because the matter is an alleged crime of terrorism. Each appeared before the judge briefly to hear the charges against them. A detention hearing is set for Friday for Greenwood, Greenwood and Crahan next week. A preliminary hearing is set for both on January 17th at 10 a.m. Hold your hats, friends. Two brothers from Utah have convinced the Supreme Court to hear a 2020 election case. And it's a big one. An attorney from Utah named Rollin Brunson has filed a lawsuit alleging that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi, Mike Pence, and about 385 members of Congress were derelict in their duty to protect the U.S. Constitution on January 6th of 2021. This actually is a pretty big case because it alleges that those members of Congress basically committed treason against the American people and the government by refusing to pause the electoral process over allegations of fraud. Part of me cannot believe that this is real. But the justices actually voted to put the case on the Supreme Court docket in October. The case is Brunson v. Alma Adams et al., Congresswoman Alma Adams, who is a Democrat from North Carolina's name, appears on the title of the case because the 385 defendants are alphabetized. It's now listed on the Supreme Court site as docket number 22-380. And just so you don't think I'm spreading Russian disinformation, you can read Brunson's complaint for yourself on the link in the show notes. The gist of the case... There were an unprecedented amount of fraud claims in the 2020 election, emanating from many different states. More than 100 members of Congress, all Republicans and led by Senator Ted Cruz, asked for the electoral process to be paused, citing precedent from a past presidential election those patriotic legislators called for the formation of a commission to investigate the fraud claims before certifying the election. 385 members of Congress failed to uphold their duty to defend the Constitution by refusing to form a commission to investigate the unprecedented amounts of claims of fraud. In essence, Brunson is arguing that those representatives and senators were guilty of dereliction of duty committed treason by aiding and abetting an enemy of the United States, or the fraud and election rigging, and further notes that the U.S. court system has long held fraud vitiates, or vitiates, I think is how you say that, everything, which means that a fraudulent election is not a legitimate election. There is absolutely precedent for what Ted Cruz and the other lawmakers were requesting, Back in 1876, 
There were intensely disputed allegations of fraud in the Rutherford B. Hayes Samuel Tilden presidential race. To resolve the allegations of fraud, Congress appointed a commission of five U.S. senators, five U.S. representatives, and five U.S. Supreme Court justices. Their task, which they carried out, was to investigate and resolve the allegations of fraud so the actual winner of the election could be determined. That actually happened. Democracy survived. They delayed the electoral process and did not certify the results until after the investigation was concluded. Tilden had 184 electoral votes when the process started, and Hayes had 165. To be declared the winner, one of them needed 185 votes for an electoral college majority. There were 20 outstanding electoral votes between the states of Florida, Oregon, Louisiana, and South Carolina. All of those votes ended up being awarded to Hayes due to fraud in those four states, and Hayes became president. Congress ignored this legal precedent in 2020, and many of them simply jumped around and told us it was the safest and most secure election ever. That was a lie, obviously. Brunson's lawsuit accuses every member of Congress of treason for not defending the Constitution because they didn't pause the electoral process to carry out an investigation. I have to wonder, why have they agreed to hear the case at all? They have three options with Brunson v. Alma Adams et al. Hear the case and do nothing, letting the lower court ruling to dismiss the case stand, which would be fairly weird since they agreed to hear the case in the first place. In every other circumstance, they've ruled that the case didn't have standing. The next, they can review the case and issue an opinion, which would also be strange. What would the opinion be if they didn't dismiss it? Fraud happened, but what can you do? And the third option would be to find in favor of Brunson which would mean that Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and most of Congress would be thrown out of office immediately and never be able to serve in office again. I don't know what to think. I don't know what the court's going to do. I do know that this is the first case regarding the 2020 election fraud that has made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and that in and of itself is at least historic. A Missouri inmate has been put to death for a 2003 killing, becoming what is believed to be the first transgender woman executed in the United States. Amber McLaughlin was put to death on Tuesday night, hours after the Republican governor of Missouri, Mike Parson, declined a clemency request. McLaughlin was convicted in 2006 of killing a former girlfriend in suburban St. Louis in 2003, The clemency request had focused on several issues, including McLaughlin's severely traumatic childhood and, wait for it, serious mental health issues, which the jury never heard during her trial. Two Missouri members of Congress, Democrats Cori Bush and Emanuel Cleaver, have been campaigning for McLaughlin's sentence to be commuted and last week wrote to Parson urging him, to scrap the execution. They noted that McLaughlin, 
who was 49, was given the death sentence when the judge in the case made a unilateral decision after the jury deadlocked on her fate. The members of Congress complained about alleged shortcomings in her trial, including failure to include expert testimony and evidence on the defendant's mental health. So wait, are we now admitting that individuals with transgenderism, that it's a disorder and a mental health issue again, and not something to push, promote, or celebrate? They further stated in the letter that Ms. McLaughlin's cruel execution would mark the state's first use of the death penalty on a woman since the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated capital punishment in 1976, and even worse, it would not solve any of the systemic problems facing Missourians and people all across America, including anti-LGBTQ hate and violence and cycles of violence that target and harm women. It would simply destroy yet another community while using the concepts of fairness and justice as a cynical pretext. Oh, no, I get it now. It appears that y'all are the ones that need to be institutionalized because that wasn't a woman. There is no known case of an openly transgender person being executed in the United States before, according to the Anti-Execution Death Penalty Information Center. McLaughlin underwent gender transition surgery while incarcerated. Paid for by whom, I wonder? In 2003, long before transitioning, McLaughlin was in a relationship with Beverly Gunter. After they stopped dating, McLaughlin would appear at the suburban St. Louis office where Gunther worked, sometimes hiding inside the building, according to court records. Gunther obtained a restraining order, and police officers occasionally escorted her to her car after work. Gunther's neighbors called police on the night of November 20th, 2003, when she failed to return home. Officers went to the office building where they found a broken knife handle near her car and a trail of blood. A day later, McLaughlin led police to a location near the Mississippi River in St. Louis, where Gunther's body had been dumped after he murdered her. McLaughlin was convicted of first-degree murder in 2006. A judge sentenced McLaughlin to death after a jury deadlocked on the sentence. Comp said Missouri and Indiana are the only two states that allow a judge, rather than a jury, to sentence someone to death. A court in 2016 ordered a new sentencing hearing, but a federal appeals court panel reinstated the death penalty in 2021. Jessica Hicklin, a transgender inmate, described McLaughlin as a painfully shy person who came out of her shell After deciding to transition, she always had a smile and a dad joke, Hicklin said. If you ever talked to her, it was always with the dad jokes. This is not a Babylon Bee article. It's real. Inflation in Germany is at its highest point in over seven decades, according to new data published by the Federal Statistical Office on Tuesday. Prices for energy and food skyrocketed to 7.9% for 2022 following the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February. Previously, annual inflation last year was at 3.1% or 
while in 1951 it stood at 7.6%, according to the Associated Press. The highest month of inflation occurred in October, with a rise of 10.4%, followed by 10% in November. However, the data indicates that in December, inflation did start to ease at 8.6%. After the German government began sending out payments for household energy bills, I feel like I don't understand economics. The government sending out money doesn't seem like a way to in, to reduce inflation. But like I said, who am I? I know nothing. In December alone, energy prices were 24.4% compared to the same month last year, and food prices had increased by 20.7%. Recently, as inflation continues to grow in Germany, unions have demanded pay increases to offset the steady rise of consumer goods. Moreover, unemployment slightly increased for the last month of the year by 5.4%. Over the course of the year, unemployment in Germany stood at 2.42 million, which is lower than the same period the year prior. The war in Ukraine has not only affected gas supply lines into Europe, but drastically disrupted food prices, as Ukraine is one of the world's top exporters of wheat. A unit of Tokyo Gas Company is in advanced talks to buy U.S. natural gas producer Rockcliffe Energy for about $4.6 billion. Rockcliffe is owned by private equity firm Quantum Energy Partners. A deal is considered important for the import-dependent Asian nation after supply markets for the commodity were roiled by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The all-cash deal involves Houston-based TG Natural Resources, which is 70% owned by the Japanese energy firm. Castleton Commodities International, or CCI, owns the rest of TG Natural Resources. A deal could be announced this month, however, no deal was guaranteed, and talks could end without an agreement. Rockcliffe produces more than 1 billion cubic feet per day of natural gas from the Haynesville Shale Formation, which stretches across Louisiana and East Texas. Quantum originally backed the Rockcliffe management team with a $350 million investment in 2015. Resource Poor Japan has been working to diversify from Russia's Sakhalin project, which accounts for 9% of Japan's total LNG imports of 74.3 million tons per year. In 2021, Japan imported 7.1 million tons of LNG from the United States, accounting for 9.5% of its total imports. So why not just buy the company, right? That is your Wednesday edition of everything yesterday, this morning. Tonight, uh, we have Liberty Library on Twitter Spaces starting at 10.15 Eastern Time. We are starting our new book, New Book, New Year, uh, Brave New World uh, by Aldous Huxley. So if you would like to join us, we are reading the first two chapters and well, we're reading them and then we're discussing them this evening. So you are more than welcome to join us if that's something you would uh, be interested in getting involved with. Otherwise, 
I will see you guys tomorrow. You guys take care. Have a wonderful Wednesday. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.